This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. For those seeking genuine transformation, SoundsTrue.com is your trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. Many voices, one journey. SoundsTrue.com. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Sally Kempton, a meditation teacher who has immersed herself in the world of meditation for over four decades and has earned a reputation as a highly experienced, gifted, and insightful meditation teacher. Sally's approach to meditation draws on her many years of training closely with Swami Muktananda, along with her deep knowledge of kundalini and subtle energies. She has maintained her initial training as a journalist throughout her life, writing and editing magazines, publishing books, and being a regular columnist for a period of time in Yoga Journal. Sounds True will be releasing Sally Kempton's new book, Meditation for the Love of It, as well as the audio program, Beginning Meditation. In this second part of this two-part episode with Sally Kempton, Sally and I spoke about having a love affair with meditation, what it means for meditation to be one's beloved. We also discussed the stages of kundalini awakening and how different forms of meditation practice might actually be most appropriate according to the stages of kundalini awakening. Here's the conclusion of my two-part conversation with Sally Kempton. Sally, one of the central metaphors you use in Meditation for the Love of It is that of a love affair, that we could actually have a love affair with meditation. And, you know, I don't think that's most meditators' experience. You know, it's a discipline. It's something their doctor told them they should do because it'll, you know, help with their stress levels. But, okay, so how am I going to have a love affair with meditation? I actually think that one of the reasons why meditation is hard for people is because we think of it as a duty or something that you do for the sake of something else. And what I actually found is, I mean, first of all, you do need to have some basic interest in, I guess you could call the field of your inner awareness. In other words, there has to be some essential curiosity as to what it is that you're going to find when you turn your attention inside. Uh, But given that, the secret, I think, is just deciding that you want to be in relationship with yourself. In other words, that you want to penetrate the layers that are standing in between you and the the deepest sense of who you are, whether you call it the essence or, you know, or the the great mind. And in order to do that, uh, in in order to love it, you kind of have to decide that the journey itself uh, has got to be a pleasure for you. You make a decision that your inner being, your inner self, is worthy of relationship in the same way that that someone that you're very intimate with, that someone that you love or like in, in your external life is worthy of, of uh, being in relationship with. And sometimes that takes a very radical reorientation of how you look at yourself. You know, because most of us are used to looking for love, obviously, outside ourselves. 
And the idea that it actually is possible to find it inside is, it's very counterintuitive to the way we sort. So the way I started was by actually taking my teacher's teaching, God dwells within you as you, and trying to understand what that meant, and realizing that what he meant by you was not just some kind of transcendental me that I was going to come in contact with when I took off all the layers of ego, etc., but actually had to mean me. And then to ask myself the question, what is me? What do we mean by me? And then to be willing to sit with the experience of being with myself with the intention to move deeper into what that field of consciousness that I identified in various ways as me actually was with the intention of of understanding what in there could possibly be sacred, could possibly be worthy of love in a really functional way. So I would say the way you start is to say to yourself, okay, I want to fall in love with meditation. You know, I want to fall in love with that in myself that all the great sages have told me is beautiful, is worthy of love. So where is it? Who is it? So you actually start with a form of self-inquiry. And you kind of go into meditation asking yourself or asking, just asking the question, um, where is love? Or how do I, how do I uh, come into a, a beautiful, playful, intimate relationship with myself? And something inside will show you. Well, you make it sound pleasurable, joyful, but I think when most people look inside, they find a whole panoply of things, including lots of very disturbing things, you know, our self-hatred, our sense of unworthiness, and that doesn't exactly sound... Fear. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't doesn't sound so great. Yeah, exactly, and I, I think that's what stops people, that's what keeps people from... Well, there's a whole this series of reasons, too. Meditation sounds boring, it just yeah. sounds hard, my back hurts, it's physically painful... Plus, I have to find... I can't get rid of my thoughts. Yeah, I mean, there's a million reasons why I hate it. And now you're saying, you know, well, you can turn it into a love affair. So I need a little bit more to really understand how I'm going to do that. Okay, so first of all, it's very, very important to to make your body comfortable. Hmm. So a lot of us are taught meditation by, you know, being given a training posture, which is usually some form of lotus sitting cross-legged. And for most of us, that hurts. So, you know, you can sit for five or ten minutes, or if you're a hatha yogi, maybe you can sit for half an hour. But you're going to have experiences in your knees and your back, etc. So what I ask people to do is sit in a chair, stuff pillows behind your back so that you're supported, so that you're actually not trying to train your body in a yogic way in meditation. This is actually quite a radical idea because one of the traditional teachings about meditation is that you kind of need to be in a vajra posture. Or in a So making your body comfortable and, and having the intention to make your body comfortable, it's, it's okay for your body to be comfortable. You're not doing austerities. It makes a huge difference. The other thing you need is is a series of practices for dealing with, you know, the all of the levels of thought that come up from the, you know, the just the mental cricket sounding, the mental log, to the deeper issues. And one of the things that I do in the book is give a series of strategies for working with the mind because, of course, you know, just getting past the thought stream is hard enough for most people. Can you summarize a couple of the core strategies? Yeah. So one of them is, of course, having a focus practice. And I actually recommend 
mantra practice, some form of mantra practice for beginning meditators, for two reasons. One, it, it gives an alternative thought for the mind. And two, if the mantra is empowered, if the mantra has shakti in it, then the mantra itself will, you can, you can kind of hook your mind to it and it will, it will help take your mind inside. But, of course, part of the point of a concentrative practice or a focal practice is that you can keep bringing the mind back to it and eventually, um, you know, this is, of course, this is Meditation 101, but eventually you actually train the mind to be able to, you know, to, to follow that track. And it usually, I find, for most people, if you do a sort of training, meditation training, and you do it for 20 minutes a day for two or three weeks, you do actually start to cut that groove. At least you can sit down and your attention will start to go inside. At this point, I found that it's ve- very important to have a practice that, that is kind of kinesthetically enjoyable, which to me means, and again, this is how I work with people who are beginning the practice, which to me means a very, very, um, a, a, an attention to the breath that's soft, that's really more about allowing the breath, and feeling the touch of the breath. So whether you're feeling it in your nostrils, whether you're feeling it in your throat, when you're, whether you're feeling it in your, in your heart or your belly, it's a very sort of Tai Chi approach to the breath in that when you start to feel that you're forcing the breath, that you, you really come back to as much as possible letting go and letting the breath come in on its own and then putting a loving thought with the breath, which you know, for, for a lot of people is, is a very simple thought like let go or or peaceful, or trust, or, you know, or in some cases, for some people, uh, I am is a beautiful practice. You let the breath come in on its own, and then you allow the, the exhalation to carry the word. Generally speaking, I find that if you're working with the heart center, that after a little while, after actually even sometimes just one or two sessions, but normally a week or two, of actually breathing with the heart, you know, breathing with attention in the heart, and a word uh, or a sense of light that the heart center does begin to soften and open, and you begin to have, at least this tends to happen with the students that I work with, you begin to have an experience of the kind of love field that's present in the heart center. And as the heart opens, as the heart awakens in that way, then you begin to enjoy it. It's about focus, a little bit of discipline, having a sense of softness, having a word that, you know, that induces positive experience in you, and an attention to the heart. And from there, then you can start to experiment in the inner body, and you can work with other practices. But what I found is that even when you're doing a very take-no-prisoners, direct-path self-inquiry meditation, you know, like, who am I, or sort of dissolving your identifications or your attachments, that if you're doing it in a heart-centered way, that you can actually be quite radical in your deconstructing practice because there is a sense of soft-heartedness that's being engendered. I didn't 100% follow you there. The deconstruction process of an inquiry is different if you're heart-centered? Yeah. So the way I like to teach meditation to long-term students is to get them centered in the heart in the way that we were describing, and then to ask them to do a very serious self-inquiry of who am I, or who or what am I, or tuning into 
bare awareness, bare consciousness. In other words, to begin to get a sense of the awareing that's beyond the personality. And what I've often found in practitioners who do this kind of, which what I'm calling deconstructive process, in other words, the process where you, the neti-neti type of meditation where you, you begin to look past the things that you normally identify with, Neti neti meaning not this, not, not this, this, not right. this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm, you know, the, the practice which shows you, okay, I'm not the body, I'm not my personal history, I'm not my emotions. Very often, for many practitioners, you come to a kind of a place of emptiness in that meditation, which feels bleak. So in other words, you kind of deconstruct your personality a little bit, and then you're left with, oh my God, who am I? In doing the kind of direct path practice which tends to wake you up to the self that's beyond your body and personality. People often have to go through an experience of emptiness or non-existence which, you know, to use D.L. Winnicott's terminology, kind of takes them back to experiences in early childhood of feeling empty or abandoned or alone that can be quite disturbing. And what I found is that if you're centered in the heart, if you've really made yourself, if you've really carved out a a sense of the heart in yourself, that you actually can come up against um, the experience of moving past your ordinary self-identification in a way that's, that actually lets you go deeper, lets you let go of more in terms of the false personality without feeling so disoriented. Mm-hmm. Good. That's helpful. Now, in part one, we spent quite a bit of time talking about kundalini awakening, your own experiences with it. And you mentioned that even the urge, the urge to fall in love with our own experience through meditation is a sign that there's some aspect of the kundalini that's awake in us. But that kundalini awakening happens in phases or stages. And and I'm curious if you could say more what those stages are in light of meditation unfolding. Well, Thank you. Um, There's a couple of ways to talk about it. In the tradition, in the Kashmir Shaiva tradition, they talk about, they actually call it Shaktipat, which which literally means descent of cosmic energy. Or and and the the idea is that there's an infusion of let's say transcendent energy that comes from the universe, and that that creates an arising of the innate Kundalini energy that's there inside you, and it's. The inf- this sort of infusion and kindling seems to happen at several different levels. One being the you know the the kind of mild one where you suddenly find you have an interest in meditation or the spiritual path. Then there is a a more intense one where centers in your body start. You start to be aware of centers in your body, and and for you know in classical Kundalini awakening, the kind they talk about in Gopi Krishna and in the yoga books, there's often an experience of something going on in the base of the spine. There's, you know, you feel an energy in the base of the spine and you feel it rising. There's another, uh, another very classical uh, awakening of Kundalini, a strong awakening of Kundalini that takes place in the heart. And it has two manifestations, which are sometimes go together and sometimes are quite separate. One is the awakening of love, the awakening of, you know, a kind of a soft feelings or devotional feelings the awakening of the pleasure, you know, that we've been talking about. And the other is an awakening of insight. So I'm sure this is your experience in your practice, that there's a sense at a certain point in practice that you understand 
certain things about the world and about the inner world, and you you begin to be able to see the difference between your so-called ordinary experience and your deeper self. And teachings from texts of every tradition start to make sense to you. You kind of get the mystical download. And it happens kind of spontaneously, right? It's like you just, you're sitting in meditation and you suddenly get something. And it also applies to your life. You you begin to have insights about your life and your path. And that's, it's called, in Sanskrit, it's called the awakening of chit kundalini, chit meaning consciousness. And it happens in the heart. So the awakening that sends all those phenomena occurring in the physical body, you know, which a lot of people, for instance, in the Kundalini Rising book that Sounds True published, there's some quite wonderful descriptions of the physical movements and the changes in breathing and that happen with that, that level of Kundalini awakening. Um, it starts to put the body through a purification process. The highest stage, the so-called highest stage of Kundalini awakening, is where it awakens in the, you know, in the centers in the head, and in which the, the experiences of union, of oneness, you actually recognize that there's just one force in the universe. So these are the three levels that the texts talk about. And practitioners, deep practitioners on the Kundalini path, have described literally thousands of experiences, which are the signs of awakened Kundalini, which, again, I you know, many of them appear in that book. But everything from, you know, you, you feel heat in the body, you feel tingling sensations in the body, your breath changes, your breath becomes very slow or it speeds up, Um, you begin to experience lightness and heaviness. So all those manifestations that we experience in meditation that I think many people experience in meditation that are kinesthetic or pranic, uh, as well as the experience of having your stuff come up, you know, your buried issues, your your sadness that you've been stuffing for your entire life, or that just you know, people sometimes come out of meditation with incredible bursts of irritability or anger or sensitivity. These are actually part of the experience of purification that goes on when the kundalini energy starts to be awakened. And it's in my experience one of the reasons why it's important to have a teacher doesn't have to be a guru, but why it's important to have contact with somebody who has experience with kundalini is because you can get very bamboozled by these experiences. You know, you get very upset by the purificatory emotions, and you also get very allured by some of the the kind of glamorous spiritual experiences that show up. So it's really important to have a sense of what's happening. And the other thing that that I've found is really key in meditation with Kundalini and indeed in all meditation practices, and there's a lot of talk about this in the book, is to honor your inner experience. In other words, to, to have an intention of really welcoming what's going on inside you. And of course, you won't want to welcome all of it. But if you go into meditation with the understanding that there is this intelligent force that's awakening you and that it's intention, that the intention of the energy that's moving inside you is loving and benign, then it actually allows you to work with some of the more surprising manifestations of Kundalini in a much more even way. Now, I'm curious, do you think that depending on where somebody is in their Kundalini awakening path, these four different markers that you described, that they might actually benefit from meditating in a different kind of way? So yeah. there's not like one method of meditation that 
depending on where you're at. Could you talk about Brilliant that? Brilliant point, yeah. I actually think it's enormously important to have guidance in what is an appropriate form of meditation at particular stages. If you're really following the path of looking for the signals of the shakti, looking for the signals of the energy, the energy will actually tell you. You'll begin to have a sense, and I know this is your experience as an experienced practitioner, you'll begin to have a sense of, okay, um, right now let me just deepen the breath, or you know, I need to be more grounded, so, so maybe I should send a laser beam of light from my, the base of my spine into the earth. Uh, or the energy is trying to rise, so what do I do with that knot in my throat? Well, maybe what I want to do is just be present with it and make some space around it. So there's actually, if you pay attention, there's, there is a certain amount of guidance that goes on and that will lead you. The thing is, that in order to find the guidance, in order to follow the guidance, you need to be able to discern what is the guidance of the energy and what is, you know, just something that's coming up in your mind. And that's why having a teacher or someone that you can ask questions of is so helpful in meditation. Because an experienced teacher can really say, okay, well, that's just an idea. This is something that you should pay attention to, and this is how to tell the difference. Now, you mentioned that you spent several decades studying with Muktananda. Yeah. And we talked about in part one how he was known for the transfer of Shaktipat. Right. People all over the world. What do you think is happening? What was happening in, quote-unquote, the transfer of Shaktipat? How does that work? I once asked him that question, and he just laughed. Uh, He never would say, uh, so what I'm going to tell you is completely theoretical. Well, um, it's a little bit more than theoretical. Yeah, there you true. were, you were an yes. intelligent observer true. on the scene for a long time. I actually began to understand it better when I began teaching myself. Because what I discovered is that when I first began um, seriously teaching, which was inside the tradition at the time, it was shortly after I became a Swami, and I was in an ashram situation where it was just me. And what I saw was that when you sit in the seat of a certain lineage, there's something that moves through that's a very, very palpable energy. Um, it doesn't come from inside you. It's not, it's not you. It's not yours. It's not personal. It's a sense that a, some very subtle force is moving through you and into the people in the room. And it sometimes, the only way I can describe it is phenomenologically. So sometimes it's a sense of it actually feels like a kind of expansive, gaseous feeling that kind of overtakes everyone in the room. Sometimes it's like a beam from the heart. You know, it's a beam that goes into someone's heart. Um, Sometimes it's as if a big love field opens up in the room. Sometimes it's though everyone suddenly understands something together. You know, there's a lot of talk now about collective intelligence. But that transmission of Shakti is what it really feels like to me, and what it felt like in those days with with Muktananda, and what it feels like when I experience it now, is that the uh, you know what what some people call the field of infinite intelligence sort of opens up, and everyone who's present in the room just kind of enters into that field. I can't describe it in you know in a more palpable way because it's such a subtle thing. But a lot of it has to do with intention. 
For instance, there's a process that teachers who give Shaktipat, who do this transmission, go through where you you actually pray to the lineage teachers. You know, you you ask that that the energy flow. Um, so it's kind of a deliberate thing. You invoke it. Uh, I, and I think a lot of the practices that people do in the more mystical traditions of, you know, using mantras or using prayers to just invoke God's energy is part of the process that, that allows that transmission to happen. But then there's the much more mysterious process where nobody's intending anything, nobody's doing anything, but it just flows. In my own case, my attention goes to a certain subtle place in my being. It, my attention fixes itself, so to speak, or it just kind of segues into that place, and then transmission occurs. It's a place that's beyond my... It's, it really has nothing to do with my personal self or even my personal intentions. Um, but somehow, um, somehow I've been guided in finding myself there so that whatever those energies are that you know that transmit experience are free to play and i think that's how it works you know that they're mystical forces they're lineage energies that's the part i'm curious about lineage energies mystical forces what the hell are they yeah i don't know you know i'm very conscious of the way the the particular energy signature of muktananda's lineage of how it feels there's a very, very distinct energy sig- signature. Can that, you describe it? Yeah, it's very forceful. It's extremely luscious and juicy, and it's it's like it, it kind of expands your heart. It's ecstatic. Um, it creates a field in which you kind of love everybody in the field, but it's it's got a forceful quality to it. It's quite, if I can use this word, it's got a kind of masculine, forceful quality to it. And, you know, when you're sensitive to energies, you know, you know when you're in the, you know, your Tammy's energy field is unique to Tammy. You know, my energy field is unique to me. And, and we actually, in a certain sense, relate to each other, energy field to energy field in ways that we're not n- normally conscious of. Well, spiritual energy is, you know, it also has a personal signature. So one of the strange, I don't know what you call it, gifts or discernments that kind of came to me over the years was a a sense of feeling into different you know different energy fields and for example my again this is just my experience um my experience of the energy around trungpa's centers for instance it's a very deep um it's kind of more belly based it kind of knocks your mind out it kind of descends very thickly and it's not, at least in my experience, it's not ecstatic. It's much more, uh. And some of the Christian energies that I've been around, which are also very much love energies, uh, there's, they're, like, they're soft and expansive, but without that forceful, you know, we could say penetrative quality that, for example, my teacher's energy had. And, and I could describe what I sense as my own energy, sure. which is... Um, it seems to be, it's kind of soft, it's kind of expansive, it's like a big field, it's much more subtle, it's kind of clear. And the way I experience it is that it creates a kind of big field in which the people who are in the room or inside, whatever the, the gathering happens to be, it just kind of encompasses everybody in the gathering. 
And it's clearly a lineage energy. At this point, it's not the same lineage energy as my teacher's. It's, you know, I have no idea where it comes from, although my sense is that it's it's very related to the Kashmir Shaiva lineage of Abhinava Gupta. So I, I think that we all have, this is sounds, going to sound really wild, but I think we have connections to spiritual lineages which come through our practice and through our development, and that at different points in our life we become attuned to one of these lineages and we get gifts from those lineages. And I would say anyone who meditates seriously and you know, and turns into themselves is going to, sooner or later, if not sooner than later, begin to realize that there's help coming from, you know, from a, a subtler, higher source that, that they're tuning into when they're aligned in their practice. Okay, let's hear more about Abhivanagupta. Okay. Um, Abhinavagupta was a 10th century sage uh, who lived in the neighborhood of Srinagar in Kashmir. He was part of a very small kind of um, family-oriented group of students and teachers of what's generally called the Kashmir Shaiva lineage. He was a heavy-duty tantric practitioner, which is to say he did a lot of ritual tantric, you know, hardcore tantric practitioners are very much about ritual. And Can you describe what kinds of rituals give us the feeling? Um, the uh, tantric ritual usually starts with setting up an altar and a worship situation for a deity. So you practice with the deity, your chosen deity, and you make offerings and you make food offerings. You make, uh, it's, you know, the Tibetan Vajrayana tradition is very much a tantric tradition in the same stream as the as the Himalayan tantric traditions. So you make a lot of physical offerings. And then in the deeper practices, you make interior offerings. So there's a tradition in which you... You know, you make the offerings of your prana, you make the offerings of your actions, but you actually, you learn to live your life in a, in a rather formal ritual relationship to a higher power, to a deity who has a form, who has a face, you know, who dresses in certain clothes, and you do, so there's a lot of visualization. And the, the idea is that by invoking the energy of the deity, you bring it forth in your life, and then you learn to internalize it so that you bring the deity into yourself. And Abhinavagupta was a master of that particular tantric lineage and also the famous and notorious Kala tantricism in which they did what's called the five M's practice, where, which is the practice that includes the sexual practice in which you use so-called forbidden substances, um, including wine, including meat, which in, a, you know, in, in those traditions was a forbidden substance, fish, uh, something that's identified as grain, but which was probably some form of intoxicating, you know, soma substance, ganja substance. And then you engage in ritualized sexual practice that, in which the couple brings the kundalini energy, mutually brings the kundalini energy up to the crown. So he was a master of that practice. And he was also the master of the Kashmir Shaiva practice, which is not a it's not that kind of tantric practice. It's an almost entirely interior practice where you identify yourself um, with the ultimate reality, who's called Shiva, which in that sense means the ground consciousness of the universe. And he was a great polymath who wrote extensively in the tradition of someone like uh, Nagarjuna, 
um, Lao Tzu, the great um, spokespeople for you know for the the non-dual traditions. He was one of the great non-dual teachers, and he had a practice lineage, um, which is the the lineage that my guru when he became when my my guru discovered Kashmir Shaivism uh, long after his own enlightenment. And he got interested in it because it described the process of enlightenment. It was the only teaching that he ever seen in the Indian tradition that actually described the process of enlightenment as he had experienced it, which included the awakening of Kundalini and the unfoldment of Kundalini. So Abhinavagupta was a master of Kundalini also. But my sense of connection to him and my sense of, of I guess, lineage connection to him really came about through my study and teaching of the Kashmir Shaiva philosophy, which is, um, you know, it's it's basically a series of practices for self-consciously and s- sort of mentally, psychophysically, continually recognizing that God is manifesting as you, that the people and the circumstances around you are manifestations of God, and you you study the tradition which shows, which reveals, which which explains how the great chain of being works, you know, how the, how the vastness manifests as the density that we experience and then reverses itself and, and gives you the capability for experiencing the vastness inside your physical body. So in studying that tradition, which I don't claim to have embodied or fully realized in any way, somehow it seems to have connected me to, to his lineage stream and it feels as though that's who teaches um, or who transmits experience in my teaching. At the moment, what I'm filled with is a sense of awe about studying someone from 10 centuries ago, reading their texts, and how that could awaken such a feeling of devotion and and connection in you. It's pretty awesome, isn't it? It feels that way to me, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's the ex- extraordinary thing about these great lineages that they're so alive. If you tune yourself to them, they're they're just completely alive in this in this moment in this day. Now, you mentioned that you were able to begin to experience this lineage flowing through you when you became a swami, and that now you were a swami for a period of time, but then you gave up your swaminess. I mean, can you tell me a little bit about that? Why did you stop being uh, Swami Durgananda and became non-Swami Sally? Basically, it was because in stepping out of the organization that I was a part of, the City Yoga, the City Yoga organization, mm-hmm. part of, of how we did that was that I gave up holding on to that clerical identity. Now, why did you step out of the organization? I was just ready to to follow my own path, really. At a certain point, I think for many people, for many practitioners, you just kind of have to start coloring outside the lines. And for me to be a spokesperson for a particular tradition, which is an exquisitely beautiful tradition in which I deeply honor, at a certain point, you stop being able to express the fullness of what you're sensing as being born in you. Um inside the language of a particular tradition. So in a certain sense, it was my integral move. You know, I just felt that I needed to, to teach in a way that, that took account of contemporary uh, psychology, of 
evolutionary theory of um, of the teachings that you know that come through different paths. So, and it just felt like the right thing to do was to just step outside the current of my tradition. And also, I had begun to feel that monks' robes were separative. You know, in other words, that that I was occupying a position by wearing those robes. I was automatically it, it kind of automatically asked people to believe what I said because I was wearing the robes, and I very much wanted to teach as an as an ordinary person speaking to peers and contemporaries, you know, without that clerical separation. And there was a personal part of it. I I kind of wanted to reclaim my historical identity. In other words, my teacher identity had been as Swami Durgananda. And it, it became very important to me to integrate Sally Kempton into my life as a teacher because it almost felt as though she had been compartmentalized someplace and sort of hadn't quite grown up. You know, my Swami Durgananda self was very mature, wise, grown up. But Sally hadn't, hadn't quite caught up to her. So I actually spent a few years after leaving the sannyas, just kind of helping my historical self, that part of myself, integrate with my teacher self. And how is that integration going? It seems to be complete. It seems to have, it seems to have happened. Now, Sally, I think something that I would call maybe a small miracle or at least a great boon has occurred with the publication of Meditation for the Love of It, which is that Elizabeth Gilbert, the author of Eat, Pray, Love, has offered a foreword to the book. In her terrific voice. In her terrific voice. How, How did this happen? Well, Liz was actually a practitioner of the tradition that I, I followed for many years, and so she when she started meditating, she used the book in its first incarnation uh, as her meditation guide. So she actually, the, you know, the book, as people will find when they read it, is very much an on-the-mat companion to your practice. And so she had read the earlier version of it, and it had been important to her, so she very kindly agreed to introduce it. It's very delightful to have her wonderful, down-to-earth, unique voice in the book. We started this second part of our conversation, Sally, talking about meditation as a love affair. And I'm curious if you could help map out for people what to do when they're not feeling in love with their partner, their meditation partner, their own inner beloved, meaning... You know, you talk to relationship experts and they'll tell you, well, you know, you get to this stalemate with your partner and here's some suggestions. And so what are suggestions for what people could do who are in some kind of place where they're not particularly interested in their love partner meditation? That is a great question. What I've always done and what I suggest people do is try a different practice. So in other words, usually when you're in a stalemate, it's for one of two reasons. Um... One is that a lot of difficult psychological material is coming up, and that's a different situation. But often it's because you're bored or you've been doing the same practice for such a long time or you know, that it's become routine. So what you need to do is find a way to take yourself out on a date, really. And one of the things I suggest in the book, this, which is what I did, was just to start asking yourself questions. You know, like, okay, what do I want in meditation? What's my relationship like at this point? Um, 
why am I feeling dissatisfied? You know, in other words, you have that dialogue with yourself that you might have with your partner where you're very straight, you're very honest. And then you also might go into meditation with a question. And, you know, it's one of the alchemical miracles of meditation that if you if you pose a question to yourself at the beginning of meditation without think, and then don't then go into meditation and don't think about it, that very often an insight or a shift will come, you know, through that mysterious inner process where the question, you know, goes into the into the energetic vortex inside you, and you know, and there's a shift of consciousness. So asking yourself open-ended questions like that will often make a difference. But one of the reasons why I have so many practices in this book. And sometimes my students say, you're giving me so many options that, you know, I I need to figure out how to make a choice. But the reason for the options is, is so that you actually can say to yourself, okay, so I'm feeling dry. You know, my heart is feeling dry, for example. I'm feeling bored. So what do I do? Well, maybe I need to chant a little bit, you know, or... Or maybe I need to do like some wild visualization practice. Or maybe I, w- maybe I want to do something where I invoke a higher energy and I ask for help. In other words, you give yourself some different practices, you try them out until you find something that kind of kindles your interest. Um, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to do some you know, very obvious physical things like changing this time and place where you meditate, Going on retreat is sometimes a you know really really helpful in kindling your practice, especially if you're very busy. Um, going to meditate in some sacred place so that you're you're actually getting help from the atmosphere. So th- those are the ways that I suggest that people you know people work with boredom and dryness and disinterest. Another thing, I mean, there's also the hardcore the hardcore approach, which is um, how many more years do you have in this lifetime and you know, if this is important to you, then then maybe you could just say to yourself, you know, in a, in a really serious way, okay, what's it going to take for me to break through here? And usually, when you ask that question seriously, you know, you know, you know what the issue is. In my experience, the thing that's in the way in meditation is usually the thing that's in the way in life. You know, in other words, if you're someone who has a hard time being present with yourself in meditation, you probably have a hard time being present with other people. And so, in a certain sense, meditation is, can be the, the arena in which you, you actually begin to understand what your deep life issues actually are. And, you know, and then you might ask yourself, okay, so what's going on in my life that's mirroring my experience in meditation? And, and maybe I have to make some adjustments in the way I'm eating, in the way I'm working, in the, you know, in, my, in the way I'm working with my own tension, so a lot of changing your experience in meditation or becoming more open in your practice is actually being willing to do a little self-inquiry in the rest of your life as well. And the other issue when material is coming up, as they say, when difficult psychological material is coming up in meditation, I would say that it's very important to be willing to say to yourself, okay, I can take this much sadness arising, but right now I'm not ready to go beyond that. And actually turn into yourself and ask for some help and support from your inner world and then help and support from others in your life in dealing with that material. In other words, there are certain times when meditation alone is not going to help you deal with the stuff that's coming up in meditation and maybe you need help from a therapist or maybe you need to confide in a friend. 
And if you're lucky, you'll have a teacher who will be able to help you calibrate it. So what makes meditation juicy and interesting um, is often helped by just making some adjustments in your you know, physical, psychological life as well. So in talking about meditation as a love affair, do you think there is a connection between our love affair with meditation and our potential love affair with humans? Totally. What's that connection? I think it depends on which direction you come from. Um, And maybe it depends on whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. So my experience has been that for me, my ability to be intimate and open with other people it was actually necessary first to become intimate and open with myself, but that I would never have been able to be intimate and open with myself if I hadn't had a couple of deep experiences of intimacy with another person. So, in a certain sense, recognizing that there is loving connection possible with another human being, having an experience of intimate loving connection in some way in your ordinary life seems to give you a guidance for tuning into it inside yourself, but it works the other way too. So the more I found that I could find that loving self inside, the more I was able to be open and vulnerable and genuinely intimate with other people. I think that, as we were saying earlier, it's very much a dance between the relationship with yourself and the relationship with others. And if we're fortunate, we really do have a dance going on so that we can become more open to ourselves and then that inner openness allows us to be safely open with the people we're close to in our life. And now just one final question, Sally. You mentioned to me that you're in your late 60s. And I'm curious, now you've had a love affair with meditation for probably well over four decades. Where are you now? Where is that love affair for you now? Well, it's completely the context of my life. You know, that there's a certain place that I got to in meditation and that I think anyone who who practices seriously gets to where there's a kind of field of inner experience that's just present all the time. It colors your vision. It colors your relationships. I mean, for me, the sort of marriage of awareness, what I would say, the, I call it the marriage of awareness and love. That is the, the recognition that at the deepest level, what I am is consciousness is awareness and the recognition of or the experience of this very flowing very juicy very luscious love energy that's just really a part of the field of the subtle body it's kind of what i where i find myself at this point so it's a marriage of awareness and embodiment which is very strong at times and less strong at others but which is always accessible beautiful thank you I've been speaking with Sally Kempton. She's the author of a new Sounds True book with a foreword by the author of Eat, Pray, Love, Elizabeth Gilbert, Meditation for the Love of It, Enjoying Your Own Deepest Experience. She's also created a new two-CD audio program with Sounds True called Beginning Meditation, geared specifically for beginners. Sally, thank you for our two-parter. Wonderful. Thank you, Tammy, for... Just your capacity for opening up space with people. It's been total delight. Soundstrue.com. Many voices, one journey. <laughs>